This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Wexler. Chris Wexler is one of the founders and the CEO of CrewNap, one of the world's leading image and video classifiers of child sexual abuse materials, or CSAM. Kunem has created one of the most potent AI tools for successfully identifying and removing digital toxic waste from the internet. By using AI to identify CSAM and other incendiary and exploitative content, Kunem has helped improve and speed content moderation. Kunem's technology has helped private platforms and law enforcement halt some of the most exploitative child sex trafficking outfits operating today. Before founding Kunem, Chris established several leading digital and analytics practices at four different major ad agencies while working with major brands. He now devotes his time to creating safer digital environments and developing social impact technologies to better serve human values and social justice. A brief content warning note about today's episode. My interview with Chris discusses using AI to classify images containing child sexual content. The work is important, but the discussion includes frank conversations about sexual material and is not suitable for all ears. Please consider your surroundings before listening. You may want to avoid listening in a space that you share with children. And now, here's my conversation with Chris. Hi, Chris. Hi, Deb. Looking forward to this conversation. Likewise. So, Chris, you founded Crunam to use technology to fight the distribution of child sex abuse materials, which I'll refer to as CSAM, and hunt down predators to get kids today out of danger. Was there something particular that got you interested in this problem? Yeah, my path is a bit unique. Literally, right out of college, I was worked on Capitol Hill briefly, realized they didn't want to change anything, disillusioned, went to Wall Street, realized that was not the change I was looking for. And then I uh, was in marketing technology for about 15, 20 years. But I, I never was really fulfilled on a personal level. I thought they were intellectually challenging, but not on a personal level. And so my brother actually started an anti-human trafficking organization in the mid-2000s. And so I'd been consulting and volunteering and working with them pretty much since their foundation. And so I've been active in the anti-human trafficking space for nearly 20 years now. And so I like to say that Krunam is uh, super exciting because it brings my advocation and my vocation together, which I never thought I'd be lucky enough to do. And I know we were chatting before we started recording and you mentioned that Krunam is named after a particular person and that there's a story behind there. Would you would you mind sharing that story with us? Yeah, she is an amazing woman. Her name is Krunam, two words. We pulled it together for a company name because it seemed appropriately techy. But really it was because we were so inspired by her. So Krunam was a street artist in Chiang Mai in kind of Northern Thailand. Very successful, doing very well. And as artists do, she, she decided to do a project and asked the street kids, showed them how to paint and asked them to paint their lives and was absolutely appalled at what they painted. That was when her eyes were opened, the fact that many 
of the karaoke bars in Chiang Mai were actually fronts for child prostitution. And so she, unlike 99.99% of humanity, including myself, started walking into the child brothels and pulling kids out. And she had 20 kids in her tiny little apartment when the traffickers came and said, if you pull one more kid out, we're going to kill you. And so she fled to the Golden Triangle, which is where like a lot of the heroin trafficking is. It's a very lawless part of the world up in far north uh, Thailand and has somehow over the last 20 years saved thousands of kids. She has constantly changed her tactics to change to save these kids and change their life. In fact, one of the first girls that she pulled out of the brothels just recently became one of the first non-state child in the history of Thailand to graduate from university. And so we kept going, well, what are we going to name this enterprise? And we realized it was staring at us in our face. Kurnam was compelled to do something better and was constantly changing tactics. And so to be cute, we like to say what we took what she does in IRL in real life and we're taking it to the URL. And so every day we just want to be as compelled as Krunam herself to make the world a better place. And so every time we say the name of the company, uh, it's a little bit of inspiration to us. I want to get to the URL in a second, but just so that we have some kind of foundations for the conversation here, a couple of, of kind of definitional questions. First of all, what is sex trafficking? And second of all, you talk specifically about Chiang Mai and Thailand as a center of, of sex trafficking, particularly for children. But I get the sense from doing some research into your work that this is a global problem and that you feel at least that the United States is a center of commerce and is a center of technology has a role to play in this. Can you give the background for first a little bit about what sex trafficking is? And second of all, what changes when we go from the local context or even the national context to the global context and in, in a more kind of globalized commercial context for sex trafficking? Oof, that's a bit of a question. <laughs> so uh, bear with me. I'm going to, I'll walk you through at least my view of the world. So sexual trafficking and child sexual trafficking as a subset is when individuals are forced into sex work against their consent. So it really, and often it's a subset of human slavery. So it's, there's a lack of freedom to work and freedom to choose that work. And we believe that as children, there is no way to consent to um, legal and lawful sex work. And so it is about the freedom to control your own body, the freedom to control your own destiny and your own work. And so Trafficking in general is the, I like to say it's the toxic waste effect of capitalism. It's taking someone's most basic right, their freedom, and forcing them into work. And unfortunately, a large portion of that is sex work. But, you know, you, you, you're right uh, about Chiang Mai being one instance of this. The low end estimate of people that are currently in slavery today is over 40 million individuals. It's probably much, much higher higher than at any point when slavery was actually legal. And it, it's an outcropping of economic, uh, environmental uh, degradation and de uh, desperation. And so it's a systemic problem. I think often what happens is people are dealing with the after effects of human trafficking, either pulling people out of a very specific situation. That's what um, Kurnam started with. She literally pulled kids out of um, out of danger in that moment. But one of the exciting things that our, one of our partners, Not For Sale, which is an anti-human trafficking organization, and Just Business, which is one of our actually co-owners, one of their foundational approaches is to, we like to say, look upriver. We could pull people out of the river all day, 
but we want to look upriver and see why they're falling in and fix those problems. And so Just Business has been doing, and Not For Sale has been doing that all around the globe. They have projects on, I think, five continents at the moment. I'm including the in the United States. And, you know, it's different in every place. When you talk about it in Thailand, it is, you know, closer to kind of the stereotypical thought of uh, child prostitution. But if you go to uh, one of the projects, one of the most interesting projects they've done was when they were working with street kids in Lima, Peru. And they were trying to understand why these kids were, were there and being trafficked in such high numbers. And they found that many of them were coming from the same part of the northern Amazon. And it was because of the extreme environmental degradation in that area that were actually um, kicking indigenous people off of their own land. And so these kids were at economic risk and frankly starving. And so their parents would either get tricked or send them to Lima to just try to survive, putting them at risk. What instead of just going, boy, that's terrible, Just Business went, okay, how do we fix this and not for sale? How do we fix this? They created a roots extract berry bark and leaf extraction company, set it up, got it all going, and then handed it over to the local community and then committed to create a market for those products. The result of that was actually the fastest growing natural drink company in the United States history, Rebel, Roots, Extracts, Berry, Barks, and Leaves. If you go to Whole Foods, there's a huge display of it. And it's one of the fastest growing companies out there. And as a result of that work, trafficking from that part of the Amazon is down 70%. They went to the root cause and tried to break and break the chains of oppression systemically versus dealing with it piecemeal. And so that's what we're doing with Kruna is... One of the things we see in the area of child sexual abuse is that the role of the digital distribution of what we call CSAM, parochially people have referred to it as child pornography. Pornography implies consent. Children can't consent. So that's why we have shifted the language to CSAM. It's a critical part of the process that actually leads to more child sexual abuse. Unfortunately, this is a, another systemic problem. One of our advisory board is a epidemiologist in child sexual abuse. And one of the things she, she recognized and, and, and talks about is the role that CSAM plays, the consumption of CSAM and looking at it and consuming it, plays in having someone's own personal damage, often from abuse as a child themselves. But so what happens is the kind of unhealthy dealing with that trauma is they go and seek out this content for themselves. And over years, finding a community online sharing that, it normalizes that behavior and at a much higher percentage actually leads to action. And so we want to literally break that cycle. We want to make it harder for people to access that content. So not only are the children that are in those images not being re-victimized every time that's shared, something like... There was a study that shows about 10% of kids that are the victims of child sexual abuse material had been identified by somebody going, oh, I saw you online, which is an absolute, just talk about opening a wound. But we want to break that cycle. And unfortunately, you know, everybody goes, well, that must be on the dark web and the horrible corners of the internet. No, the um, National Center for um, Missing and Exploited Children actually had over 65 million instances of this reported to them from major digital companies around the globe, largely based here in the United States. Such as? It's all the names you'd recognize. Facebook, Google, 
Twitter, Dropbox Box. All of these platforms are being used by predators and sadly more and more often organized crime because while they don't necessarily, they find the prostitution of children distasteful, even organized crime does. The one thing they love is profit margin and scale. And unfortunately, that's what this is doing digitally. And so we're seeing organized crime get much more involved. But they're using the same tools you and I use every day and everybody uses every day. The same tools that you and I are using right now to talk across the country and have an amazing productive conversation, someone else is using for a private sex show with a child that's currently being held against their will. And the way that happened is they met on a WeChat, uh, they met on a WhatsApp group, and then they exchanged maybe money through either Bitcoin or any other kind of peer-to-peer payment system. And then they get a link to a private show. These are all the same tools we're all using. Those tools aren't wrong, aren't evil, but that use of them is really damaging. And so we like to talk about ourselves as being in, we're in a, we're a digital protection company because we're protecting kids. We've talked a lot about the kids, but we're also protecting these companies. They don't want that on their platform any more than anybody else. And I think the unspoken and the unknown heroes of the, of the open peer-to-peer internet right now our content moderators around the globe. There are people that sit and watch the worst of humanity. Everything that you flag on any platform, go, boy, that shouldn't be there. And you flag it. Some human has to look at that. It was originally done in the US and then too many people sued under worker rights here in the States. So these companies didn't really fix the problem. They just exported it to the Philippines or to Indonesia or to India. And now you have people, you know, exporting misery is not exactly a great business model. And so they're the ones looking at it. The typical sit in a job like that is about nine months and you typically come away with PTSD. So we want to protect those people as well. So they're not consuming this content all the time. The best things to automate are things that are repetitive, predictable, and difficult for humans to do. And while it's not difficult for a human to identify typically child sexual assault materials, it is difficult to see it over and over and over. In fact, the typical content moderator, their effectiveness of identifying this drops dramatically after just doing 10 minutes of it. We were actually created not to help content moderators or Facebook, but to help law enforcement agents. Our product was actually originally created for um, UK, the UK law enforcement. Uh, one of our co-founders, Ben Gantz, was a child sexual assault investigator. And he spent 80 to 85% of his time going through confiscated materials to see, A, is it illegal content? And B, how is it classified? Getting it ready for prosecutors, all that. And he spent 15% of his time actually investigating and saving kids and getting them out of those situations. Our tool being implemented, it's now implemented as widely as the technology allows in UK um, law enforcement, has flipped that dynamic where, you know, now it's 60, 65, 70% of their time is actually spent invest doing what humans do well, which is pulling in complex information and, and connecting it together in investigations and actually pulling kids out of danger that are in danger today and letting the computer actually go, well, this is, this is or isn't CSAM. And so when we did that with law enforcement, we realized this is a powerful technology that can actually help clean up and make the open internet a much more hospitable place for children, for you and I, when we're out there, the last thing we want to do is run across content like this when we're out on the internet. And so 
it's a one of those rare cases of a win-win where something that not only makes society better, but also will improve businesses and improve users' lives. I think the only element that you know you have to think we have to think about and think about deeply is the competing goods of surveillance and privacy. And uh, we're kind of the ultimate edge case arguing against a fully a full you know end-to-end encryption online, because when you have end-to-end encryption in uh, the digital sphere. That's where the predators go and it protects them as much as it protects you. And so one of the things we've been doing a lot in the last year is having real conversations with privacy advocates to find the balance because these are competing goods. And that's always, th- those are the hardest ones, right? And I think too often privacy advocates are like, it, we need absolute privacy. And too often, particularly in the area of CSAM, because it's children, we're, well, we have to scan everything. Why, why not? There has to be the right and proper balance. And those conversations, we as a society are just starting to have those real conversations. Yeah, it's so interesting when I think about ethics, usually ethics involves competing values in a hierarchy. Of course, our values always, in a sense, compete with one another in that kind of hierarchy. Do we believe in free speech or do we believe in the right not to be harmed by other people's speech? Of course, we believe in both, right? But in each given situation, we have to ask where they exist in that hierarchy and what trade-offs to each we're willing to make in order to preserve both values. And usually, you know, I think this is one of the interesting areas of tech. In many other arenas of public life, we have kind of figured out the balance of those hierarchies. Of course, in tech, we have not yet figured out the balance of those hierarchies, nor have we codified that balance into what exists in other places, which is law and regulation. So this is a really, really interesting, I think, question about where we allot our our values in the context of this. Of course, with child sex abuse material, I think that there's a clear value that elsewhere and probably here as well have prioritized. But I want to ask a question about that dimension of illegal materials and very specifically, because of course, there's a whole spectrum of illicit or illegal materials that circulate online, everything from people's private materials that somebody has hacked and publicized to, of course, pirated material, etc. In an environment of porn or videos with violent graphic or sexual content, or even content that isn't transgressive, but pirated or illegally circulating. Is CSAM or CSAM a separate and distinct problem? If so, how? Well, I mean, it's in the definitely the same class of problems. We do, we we actually at Kronom, while we focus, our large focus right now is on CSAM, we do think of about the broader arena of online harms. To get philosophical and, and not maybe even philosophical, but to think, to kind of take the conversation a little broader, I think when we think about how society is adapted to new technologies. It typically takes society about 30 years to figure it out. It took that long to figure out radio, maybe a little long, you know, from the ham radios during World War One to commercial radio in the 20s. It took about 30 years for us to kind of figure out how to make that work. And the internet is really kind of, we're on this on a similar path where the first 10 years was really proving that it's a real thing and it was hobbyists and nerds like me that, you know, ooh, a bulletin board, how fun is this? And then it was this kind of popularization and expansion and really the social media era where everybody was online and we found all these amazing things. We're in the refinement period. We're in the last 10 years of that kind of societal adjustment where we see the benefits of universal connection. We see the benefits of shrinking the globe. 
but it's a really flat interaction. You know, you talked about how we've kind of figured out privacy a little bit in the physical world, but you have other structures in there. You have location, you have jurisdiction, you have all these things. The internet flattens all of that. And so we have an entirely new set of challenges where we're not in a doctor's office to go, yeah, everything here should be private. We may be talking to our doctor, but that isn't necessarily, I mean, every time I talk to a doctor, it doesn't mean it's necessarily private. And so we, at this point of the internet, are figuring out how to refine and deal with the flip side of free speech. You know, everybody talks about the First Amendment along the lines of the right to speak, but there's an entire class of behavior and speech that we've determined, uh, at least here in the U.S., in a very U.S.-centric view. It's funny, when you talk about the First Amendment globally, they just shake their head like, what have you guys done? But you think about the speech that is exclusionary, and that's kind of where we are starting. We really are focusing our company. So obscenity being one of them. CSAM fits solidly into obscenity. True threats of violence, blackmail, and slander and libel. And so slander and libel, that, that's where you talked about hacked materials or revenge porn fits into that. I think we need to find better technological solutions so you can have consent if somebody else posts something that that you are part of. It doesn't make sense that as long as it's on my phone, I can put it to YouTube. We, we have not figured out how to deal with that. And, you know, I think you see that particularly on a lot of the tube sites in the in the pornography space. Revenge porn is a, is a legitimate problem. And while we won't completely solve it with technology, there are technological ways to address that. And so on the very base levels, we're thinking of how can we use technology to reduce harms that are kind of right now just lowest common denominator that are harming individuals. You know, you talked about like uh, copyrighted content. I will let Hollywood defend themselves. They they can go deal with that. Um, There is a powerful mechanism there that's supporting them, which is uh, profit motive. There's nobody going, boy, I'm going to make a lot of money if I fight CSAM. There's no, and so one of the things we're looking at is how do we build enforcement and reinforcement structures in technology companies and payment companies so that they see the net good of pushing risk out of their business model or risk out of a payment platform in a way that all of a sudden they're like, oh, it does make sense for us to try to police this. And I worked in corporate America a long time. I don't believe a corporation is going to be doing something out of the goodness of their heart. But when we can show that by pushing this risk off their platform is good for business, then we're creating virtuous cycles. And those virtuous cycles can only happen if technology is there to enable them most of the time. And so that's really where we think we fit into the ecosystem is creating virtuous cycles. But you know, with us, with our perspective of really protecting those that don't have a voice in the ecosystem. You know, this is really exciting for me. I, in my ambition to develop an ecosystem for ethics and technology, oftentimes I try and make the ethics case, but increasingly I'm making the case that actually doing good is good for business models. If you're mitigating the risk of a company or if you are protecting, creating social good through those kinds of protections, you're actually creating value and you you can make a claim not just to social capital, but actually to a 
company's bottom line. And so one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is that I think that your company and your work is one of the great examples of what I think about when I think about this kind of ethics and technology dimension. You embody the idea that you can both do well, uh, i.e. be financially successful and also do good. Is it hard to do both in Silicon Valley in in your experience? And, and what makes it so hard? What gets in the way? Milton Friedman, uh, he's the one that got in the way. You know, so so when I came uh, when I came on the on, I, I really do think that we're, we're dealing with a, a philosophical sea change in corporate America. When I when I came on the scene on Wall Street, boy, you only heard about shareholder value and business models were literally built around pushing externalities off of the business and onto society. And if if you use the environmental movement as a uh, analogy to the digital space, companies that pushed their environmental degradation into the river, into the air, onto the land, were not sustainable businesses. The coal industry is not a sustainable business because the only way they were as profitable as they were is because they pushed those externalities onto us. It only took a hundred years, but we finally figured out, holy crap, that's not a sustainable business. And you're seeing those, literally those businesses being punished by the marketplace. You're seeing those same, the market punish digital companies, I think, at a much faster pace because it, um, just think about how most most college students talk about Facebook. They're like, ugh, I don't like being there. That's not, that's not a good neighborhood. Well, my daughter, when she said, wasn't that just Instagram for old people? But if you don't have a healthy community, it literally is damaging your product because your product is that community. And so I think, you know, you talked about how is that tension happening in, uh, in Silicon Valley? I am pleasantly surprised to say I'm not running into much of that tension because coming out of Cambridge Analytica in 2016, coming out of January 6th, every one of these major technology platforms realize that not having a healthy community is an existential risk to their business model. And they are pushing huge resources and frankly, right now, largely people. But if you look at the Facebooks, uh, the Googles, uh, the Amazons, the Microsofts of the world, they're also pushing huge technology at this. And that's fine. That's great. I'm more the merrier in my mind. But uh, as long as you so ethically source the data and ethically treat it, I don't think that's always happening, but that's here nor there. But this is something that is actually a major area of focus. You have an eruption of titles of trust and safety, of integrity, um, community integrity at all of these platforms. Often they've only been there for two or three years. And you see companies that have focused on this being dramatically rewarded in the marketplace. Look at Bumble. Bumble's first focus is having a healthy community. It is all about trust and safety. And as a result, that is a much more successful business and it's a much more successful community. And so I think Silicon Valley, first they wanted to get to scale, but now they're realizing, oh, to maintain this and to have people stay, we can't just have a dumpster fire and an outrage machine. Eventually that turns people off. And so we need to have a healthy community that actually leads to long-term sustained communities. And it's we've never had online communities in the world. We've never done this. I think it's a little problematic that private corporations are going to be the ones figuring out how we organize as a community online. I think that the cynic in me, I don't really trust government to figure that out either. 
it's going to take a lot of conversation and a lot of refinement to find the balance because we're really changing as a entire people. We were forced to organize around location. You know, in the in 1910 in New York, 85% of people married somebody that lived within three blocks of them. Not because they had amazing people living next door to them, but because that's what was available. Literally the size of cities are built around how far it takes with that current mode of transportation at that time to go 20 minutes to the edge of town from the center of town. Technology has constantly grown our communities. Well, now it's grown it globally. And we've gone from large cities to the world. It's literally cognitive dissonance. And we need to create structures and, and tools to, to help make that a healthier place. The reason we're a private company and not a nonprofit is that this is a problem that, that requires the scale of capital. And doing the right thing isn't a charity. Doing the right thing is doing the right thing. I think that's actually been one of the main problems when you look at how we have been addressing things like CSAM. There's been a, a lot of actually really strong work done here. Microsoft built a tool in 2008 called PhotoDNA, really powerful. But they handed it off to a nonprofit because it wasn't a sustainable business model for them. They still care about it. They still It's still valuable. But if you treat it like a nonprofit, unfortunately, the market, treat, um, the market rewards value creation and the false dichotomy of for-profit nonprofit needs to get broken down. It's not making money and doing good. You can actually make money doing good. Nobody is asking someone who is cleaning up a Superfund fight to pay a discount because it's improving the economy or improving the environment. Those are for-profit cleanup businesses that help that clean up toxic waste. This, we, we need to have the same mindset because it's the only way we can scale solutions is if we have this, if we have access to the same capital and the same talent. I think too often, really smart, motivated people had to choose either by being um, fed through ego and self-knowledge of doing right and, and making a living and, and making money, that's a false dichotomy as well. Now, are we paying through the nose? No, but there's no reason that someone doing good shouldn't be compensated properly. That's, that, that's just ridiculous in my mind. And so we want to find those opportunities and a, a little bit of my motivation in the back of my head, Krunam, is, hey, I want to prove that out so the Elon Musk of social good shows up and blows me out of the water. Like if I can inspire that person, then that's awesome. Because there's no reason that a tax code that created nonprofit status, you know, 70 years ago actually dictates how we run society. It's 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 a really weird thing we've been doing. And so I want to kind of break down that false structure. And of course, there is, you know, I think a growing interest in breaking down that false structure. There's a growth of what are called B Corps, which are corporations that include a sense of creation of value in terms of money, but also count part of what they see as value as social value. And I'm really interested in the kind of investment structure that you have. The more I think about ethics and technology, the more I think about what gets in the way, in my view, the more it comes down to thinking about that structure of venture capital and investments themselves. You have major investors, including the investment firm that you mentioned, Just Business, a San Francisco-based impact investment firm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about impact investing and Just Business and impact investment as different from other forms of investment. What makes Just Business different? And how do we think about value in terms of social capital as well? Well, Just Business is even unique, I think, even in the impact investing space. Because I think there are classes in the impact investing space that are kind of ESG-focused firms, 
that are looking for better, you know, kind of a good, better, best. They're looking for better solutions. One of the things and one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be in the company of families of Just Business is that one of the co-founders of Just Business, David Batson, likes to say that these are causes in, in search of a company, not the other way around. And so they're baked into what these companies do. And so Just Business was created to fund not for sale and nonprofit. And now I think it's 70% of their revenue is derived from companies that were that they had cre- helped create and spin out, whether that's Rebel Drinks, whether that's a chain of brunch restaurants in Amsterdam that are actually training grounds for women pulled at, that were trafficked into the red light district in Amsterdam, tricked into te- coming from Romania and Eastern Europe, telling, hey, we have hospitality jobs. And you come in, they take their papers, and the next thing you know, they're in the red light district. But these restaurants are top-rated brunch restaurants in Amsterdam, but they're really a training program for these women. And so that's why they exist. But like you said, you have to do do well and do good. You know, we always talk about that. You have to have a great business. You have to do well before we can do good. But doing good is baked into who we are. And you talked about B Corp. We're actually a um, public benefit corporation. So we've actually taken it a step further and actually it's tied into actually our incorporation. So for our shareholders, Stopping CSAM and other intractable online harms is our first goal, and and business growth is our is is the same on the same plane. And so, when we look at pricing, when we look at how we provide our product to law enforcement or to um, certain key players in the market, we go, okay, should we partner with these guys or these guys? And and we'll often go for scale and less money than we will for more money and less scale. Because scale means impacting more positive people. And so all it does is put another voice at the table. And while, yes, it's a little more complicated, if all you're trying to do is make more money, it's it's almost too simple. In this case, it's it's finding how do we literally make the right choices that we can have profitable, thriving business, but in the end, impact more people, impact more children, impact more communities. One of the ways we're doing that with, um, with Krunam is being very deliberate with our who we have um, in our investor base. We're not just trying to raise money to raise money. In fact, we've turned down a lot of money. A lot of money is because people kind of see that there's scale to be had here. But we're like, well, but you're not aligned with our mission. We, we are focusing on having missionally aligned investors and money within the organization. So because I think that often is what pushes any kind of startup on onto a different path is if 70% of your money is going, yeah, but I want to exit at 10 times, that inherently puts tension. And so reducing tension in an organization is really critical, particularly in the impact space. It means being really cognizant about hiring. It means being really cognizant about bringing in money. It, It thinks about being very deliberate about bylaws and how you're making decisions and making sure, you know, part of my job as CEO is to reinforce at every step of the way, this isn't just about the bottom line. This is about our, our overall goal. Now, the people in the organization right now, they're like, yeah, we get it, Chris, because they're the ones that brought me in. But I know that that's a key part of my job as we grow and add more people. Like, yes, you do backend development, but remember our goal is to impact as many people as possible. And our goal is to um, reduce harm in this area. And so I think that's a, a, an area that often, you know, 
for years, I did marketing and marketing technology for some of the biggest corporations in the world. I worked with Harley Davidson and Microsoft and Chipotle, all these amazing companies. And I got this, like, I got to, I got a sneak peek behind the fence and, and the, the curtain of what made them tick. And too, so often the hardest jobs for us um, when we were trying to change public perception was to realize there was inherent tension within the organization. So an organization might say, we are trying to be seen as an innovator, but they only incent their executives on quarterly earnings. Those are two inherently different things. You can't incent someone to be an innovator if the question of whether or not they can buy a boat in July is whether or not they hit their numbers. Humans are humans. They're going to go to whatever they get compensated on. So also, you know, so when we think about it, we're aligning compensation, we're aligning progress in the organization all around the ultimate goal of the organization. And I think too often organizations don't have that alignment between personal incentive and organizational incentive. The ones that really do great have those aligned. You know, it's and that's not unique to impact investing. It's just more important to impact. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about who you hire and what kinds of backgrounds and what kind of like breadth and scope of workers you have in the company. I think that when people hear that term tech company, they think, oh, you have to have a STEM background or you have to know how to code. But it seems like what Krunam is, is doing is so multidisciplinary and involves such a complex problem that it requires a multiplicity of different kinds of people with different kinds of backgrounds, bringing that expertise in. What kinds of jobs are you filling? What kinds of backgrounds are you looking for people to bring in? And how does a tech company organize such a vast multidisciplinary kind of uh, structure of, of the workforce? I think with, I'd say we're not a tech company where we solve problems. Technology just happens to be how we do it. One of the first conversations we had, because our, our tool right now is all AI and deep neural network driven computer, like cutting edge computer vision, cutting edge AI, cutting edge deep neural network work. And we're like, do we have AI in our name? And I'm like, does a construction company have a hammer in their name? That's a tool. Technology is a tool. And so that was a conscious decision from day one that our name isn't Krunam Technologies, it's Krunam. And it's because we have an objective that we're getting to. And, and so if you have objective-based planning, then you try to figure out what you need to do that. So, you know, when you talked about like what kind of people we're talking about, we obviously have amazing technologists. Um, Scott Page, our CTO, has been working in the computer vision space pretty much from the beginning. One of the reasons your phone can can take great pictures in the dark is because of work he did back in the you know early 2000s, right? We have Ben Gantz is a former child sexual assault investigator. And so bringing in the point of view of law enforcement and someone who's actually been on the ground in this is really critical. Not for Sale is not only a part owner of the company, the anti-human trafficking organization, but our president is actually on loan right now from Not For Sale because we want the voice of the survivor in here. If all we're doing is trying to pull this out, but we do it in a way that further damages the people we're trying to protect, we're not solving our goal. The chairman of our board is one of the leading experts in data governance and AI ethics. And so we're thinking, because data governance is a critical part of all this. Now, if you notice, I'm talking about all these things, only one of those are technology. Data governance is technology related, 
but it's more legal and process. The voice of the survivor, that's not technology. We're organized around the solution, not the mode to the solution. I think too often companies build a hammer and then everything looks like a nail. We want to identify the nail before we figure out what tool to use on it. And so we start problem first. And you know, the, the good news is that's exactly how our CTO thinks about it, but that's how we all think about it, that we're solving solutions. And so that leads you to thinking uniquely about problems. Obviously going to a Microsoft, a Google, a Facebook would be a logical first step, but we're not talking to their engineering teams. We're talking to their trust and safety teams. We're talking to their community, their content management teams. We're talking to their PR teams because they last thing they want is a child sexual abuse material headline in the Wall Street Journal. We're talking to the boards because this is an existential risk to some of these companies. And so again, focusing on the problem we're solving, not the technology of how, because how we're solving it is how we're doing it today. But I've been in techno I've been working in technology long enough to know how we solve it in five years will not be the same way we solve it today. So we need to focus on keep our eye on how we solve the problem and not hold too hard to the tools that we do that. And so that's been a critical part of us is really just organizing around solving problems versus how we solve. What are the tools that you are using right now to solve the problem? And you talk about this as an evolving problem that will look different in five years. Do you have any thought about what it will look like in five years and, and what tools you might need to develop? Is that part of what you're working on as a business model? Absolutely. In the current tool set, we started with images because that's where computer vision lives. And we wanted something that wasn't easy to defeat. When we say defeat, using, you know, in, in cybersecurity, it's always you defend this way and then the, the people trying to get around their defenses do this. And so one, I think one of the most brilliant technological choices that Scott Page and his team made was to focus on what it looks like. Because then if it doesn't look like CSAM, it isn't CSAM. And so it's really hard if they want to defeat and make the materials not look like child sexual abuse materials, I think we win. And so by focusing on in the image space, the other thing we did is, is built a, the first ever video classifier. And so that was a bit important because one of the things we saw in the data in, in 2017, 90% of CSAM were images. But because we all walk around with a 4K camera in our pocket, now 60 to 70% of CSAM is video. And so we built a video classifier so we can identify that because that's where the problem shifted to. The problem is shifting again, and, and we should be rolling out in the coming months a classifier for live streaming because we're seeing that is the next phase. And so again, when you organize around the problem, you start, you start building around that. So in the near term, it's literally moving from images to video and then recorded video to live. And live is really critical for how things are happening right now. I think moving forward, we're going to have to be thinking long and hard about deepfakes. So children's faces put on adult bodies. Illegal? Not illegal? Like th th there's a lot of questions there, but what it does do is it feeds the cycle of abuse. And it definitely is in violation of terms of services of these organizations. And so, again, if we're looking at the problem of breaking the cycle of abuse, we have to start figuring out how to understand that, detect that, and, and um, eliminate that from platforms. And then there's the, the other thing that we're just starting to see come into the ecosystem is CSAM created whole cloth, whether that's animation or very sophisticated computer animation. 
Now, some people argue that that's a victimless crime because there literally was not a victim to create it. And I think, you know, much like impossible meat, it is better, but impossible meat has a fairly large ecological footprint as well. It uses palm oil and everything else. We think that's the same here, but it's more on how it impacts the consumer of this. Because again, if we have, for a really brutal analogy, vegan CSAM that isn't hurting anybody to create it, but it's still feeding future abuse, we still need to address that. And so as consumption changes, as production changes, we're going to be constantly at the kind of, we're going to be working to be at the forefront of that with CSAM and then moving into areas. And a lot of people are doing this now and doing great work, but I'm sure we, you know, we, we have it on our roadmap as well. I know we do. To move into natural language processing around grooming of children and helping people find the patterns of predators that are on social platforms trying to convince young children, it's typically 80% girls. Oh, your parents are down on you. Oh, you want to run away. Oh, I'll meet you at the, I'll meet you at the bus stop. They're literally sending them into a trap to be trafficked. And so, and the, and what's difficult about that is, you know, images, humans look basically similar. Obviously we're dealing with a wide range of skin tones and everything else globally. And, and you know, facial recognition, we see the issues there and we we're dealing with that. But with language, it's that much more difficult because you're dealing with slang, you're dealing with different languages, you're dealing with different. And so as hard as it was to do images, it's going to be even harder to really tackle language. But intractable problems are us. That's that's part of you know what we need to do. And some of that nat- natural language processing that goes into um, incitement to violence, whether that's political with moving from you know extreme Islam or extreme right wing, no matter what side of the spectrum you are on politically, if you're driving to violence, that's a whole nother area. And so, but that's often language based. And so it's a completely different problem. And we'd have to create a whole nother group of specialists around that to go and do that. But that's kind of, you know, that that's how we see our future is kind of creating uh, expert teams to go and deal with hard problems. And if you're building these, I would imagine, remarkable technologies, technologies that are able and equipped to identify transgressive live streaming videos or NLP based recognition with that kind of powerful capacity, I would imagine that these technologies have a wide range of import beyond CSAM, that they could potentially stop the live streaming of violent activities. I, I heard stories about live streaming suicides or live streaming tremendously violent acts. Is your objective or is your vision as part of what it means to grow this company expanding beyond CSAM or are you really focused and driven by the singular issue? And what's the balance? The balance is what we can what we can accomplish without um, distracting ourselves too much because each one of these are unique and hard. And so I think that that's something that we think about every day is because there are many, many things, but Violence detection, blood detection are really critical. Sadly, there, there's an entire class of beheading videos that these platforms are fighting, with, are dealing with every day. And so, you know, I we, we do have some expertise around weapon and violence detection within our company. And the question is, when does it make sense for us to expand out? Right now, we're focusing on CSAM because we see that as a really critical use case and one that uh, the technology companies are already comfortable using technology. If you look at some of those other harms you're talking about, by and large, those are all being done by hand still. They're still bespoke. And many of those companies aren't comfortable going to a technology to do that. And so we want to prove out just how amazing that is through CSAM and then move to the next 
area of impact. But if we expand too quickly, we're going to dilute all of it. And so we we really want to focus on CSAM first. And then, you know, when you look at that, there's broader areas of human trafficking and where does that lead? Anti-money laundering. So there are a lot of different areas for us. I think it's, we have to be careful to either uh, have the resources or have the focus. Um, and right now we're, fo- we're relying on focus. We talked a little bit about companies, but do you see a growth or a change in how law enforcement is tackling these issues? And are they coming to you with particular concerns that are different from those of the digital companies that might reach out to you to ask for your, your help? We're in a unique position that we started with law enforcement and have deep ties globally with the law enforcement community. They definitely have a, a slightly different need set in that for them, it's not just removing the content, but also preserving evidence and making sure that the data is handled in a way that will hold up in court and proving that I think we're at the stage where we are having to prove to courts that using technology is a good, is a way to do this. Typically, you have months and months of gap between arrests and actual prosecutions because of the manual nature of a prosecution, which means typically the only cases that they'll bring to prosecution are cases of abuse of children four and under. How do you look at a five-year-old and go, nope, you don't count for prosecution? And that's just triaging a very difficult situation. And so when we look at law enforcement, we view ourselves as a potential force multiplier because they're they're bringing a machete to a machine gun fight. They are working their hardest. It's hard, draining work. But we need to arm the current resources that are there for child sexual abuse investigators and give them as many tools and be a force multiplier for them in an ethical way. And then make the case on a, on a public stage to get them more literally human resources. Because I think right now we only see the tip of the iceberg of, of the abuse that's out there because just the nature of detection. It's a concern of ours is that as our technology becomes more widely applied, all of a sudden these poor um, investigators will be overwhelmed even more. And so we're already having early conversations with them to make sure that they're either ready for the onslaught or, and so it's 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 a difficult problem because you know government budgets are not endless you know, earlier on in the conversation, you said that the cynical part of you was not ready to put your trust in governmental and legislative bodies to regulate appropriately, to understand the nature of the problem and to, and to roll out comprehensive, sustainable solutions. The cynical part of me says that companies that are already kind of built in with their own ecology and infrastructure are not companies that I trust to have, I think, their community's best interest at heart either. With Within that infrastructure of, I think, two bodies that would ideally provide productive, ethical solutions to social questions that cause great damage, such as CSAM, where do you place your your trust? What kind of infrastructure beyond CUNAM would you want to see grow and develop as a place and repository and as an infrastructure to deal with the kinds of questions, crucial questions of social ethics and mitigating social damage. What what stands between legislation on the one hand and industry on the other hand that can do the kind of work that you want to see done? There's a phrase in cyber security that we use which is zero trust. I operate in a zero trust environment, which sounds horrifying. What I think what it means is that we're not going to get out of this strictly in a rule-based rule-based approach. That regulation is 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 vital and important, but I lived through the rollout of GDPR. Important legislation, an important idea, but various elements of GDPR was really damaging. In fact, a, a change to it in late December literally stopped most digital platforms from using any kind of technology to scan for C 
CSAM uh, for about six months. GDPR is uh, General Data Protection Rights, I believe is what it stands for. It's a regulatory structure that the EU rolled out about five, six years ago that was all about properly regulating the surveillance economy that technology companies had developed and giving individuals the right to control what data is being collected and how it's being used and how companies are required to ethically collect data. I think it's still a point of, so GDPR rolled out in, I think, 2012, 13. I don't remember exactly. What I see technology companies doing is simply moving operations that were being done in Europe to the United States that has a more permissive data environment or to into, say, uh, somewhere in South Asia that has no structure. Government is inherently tied to geography and the digital ecosystem is inherently without borders. Like, for example, we recently did a review of mandatory reporting laws on if a company identifies child sexual abuse material on their platform. And there are only 112 countries that have different laws around what CSAM is and 43 that have different reporting requirements. That's not a tenable long-term solution for what is a flat global society. And I also don't necessarily trust large digital companies to do this because this is not their primary business. Their primary business is to buy and large sell advertising, a lot of them, or sell devices or sell whatever. And this is just something else that they have to deal with. And so we really view that 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 lack of clarity on global legal structures that may take 20 years for us to come to a global consensus on. So when I say I don't trust regulation, I more trust that it's going to move fast enough to save kids fast enough. I do think we'll get there. We will get there. It just will take way too long. I don't really trust technology companies in and of themselves because it's not their core business. And so we want, we're, we're trying to kind of step into that gap and provide transparency, tools, and control for the companies and for communities to make sure that this can be a healthier, more regulated environment. And so, you know, if regulation gets updated every 10 years and regulators are able to look at something, audit something once every five years, we live in a world where with CSAM, we need to be doing millisecond regulation. Every image that gets uploaded should be regulated. And um, because CSAM is non-controversial, 99.9% of the world is like, yeah, that doesn't belong there. This is an easy one. It gets harder as you go down the road, but it's really easy with CSAM to go, hey, before you upload onto YouTube, let's put it through what is essentially a child protection virus filter and say that doesn't belong on my platform. CSAM is the ultimate edge case. I think ethically, it gets more murky as we walk down that line. And so it's another reason we started with CSAM because ethically, it is so crystal clear. When you get to violence detection, that's a little, that, that's pretty close. But when you get to things like consent platforms, boy, that seems really clear. But then, well, did you consent at the time? Do you consent now? Is that actually you? There's identity within the, in the community and who has to figure out who that is? Is that a responsibility on the person in the video who has the, wants the video down, the person hosting the video? There are a lot of really tricky questions there. And I don't think anyone denies that revenge porn's a terrible thing, but it's really hard to regulate. And so our concept is let's deal with something that is a clear societal ill that has coalition around it, create a structure that is 
privacy safe as best we can, and then take what we learn to the ones that are harder to deal with on an ethical basis and have our muscles stronger from the easier things before we move on to the harder. I totally buy that, by the way. I think a lot of people who are interested in ethics want to start with the edge cases or the boundary cases and then create a rule structure from there. But it seems obvious to me that what you're doing is tackling something that everybody already has consensus around and then developing the tools that can then maneuver into the more challenging cases is, is quite on point. I asked that question in part because I'm really excited about the way that you're outlining a, a social structure of developing what I would call public interest technologies. In other words, technologies that are developing to serve a public uh, interest. And of course, you say you're not a technology company, but the tools that you, you're using are. And so I count that in what I consider to be an ethical technology base, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show. One of the reasons that I really wanted to make that very clear is that I speak to the next generation of humanists and technologists who are going to be looking for jobs. And my hope is that they take my class and they listen to you and they make decisions about where they want to go next in the space of being mindful that you can do good and do well, and that there are jobs available for people with a variety of different backgrounds in that space. What would you say to that next generation of humanists and technologists who are going to be entering the workforce and who want to do good and do well and who are thinking about what to do next? I think, well, a couple things. One is to make choices, particularly early in your career, that are focused on continuing your education. I know that many people, and I th and particularly ones that are really focused, I, I have this problem. When you're focused on trying to find a blending of your ethical structure of the world and the economic structure of the world, know there isn't a perfect job. And there are a lot of options out there in the world. But know that every step that you take in your career should be one that adds a skill set that gets you to your ultimate goal. In my career, I worked in public policy. I worked in finance. I worked in marketing. I worked in technology. All of those are coming together right now. I could not have done anything like this when I was 25. But I learned, I found ethical people working in not necessarily perfect jobs for me. I like to say when I was on Wall Street, I had the aptitude, but not the attitude. Talk about not my people. But I learned a ton. I learned about risk. I learned about how capital works. With, if I didn't have that knowledge right now, I couldn't do this job. And so I think focusing your career on building skills and understand that if you don't get the perfect job out of school, it may be the perfect thing that you're learning. And it might just be that it's a terrible job that you learn grit. That may be the perfect job because sometimes you just have to grind through stuff. And so first of all, focus on the skills, not necessarily the job early in your career. And then, you know, be open to feedback on what is and isn't ethical in your world. Because I think particularly when you get into the area of nonprofits and the area of business for good, it's really easy to slide into the area of ideology over progress. And one of the reasons Krunam is making impact today is because we understand that for our product to work, it has to work for companies that we may or may not agree with their business model. You know, if we're working with an adult site to clear CSAM, that's not my cup of tea, but I'm going to lead to huge impact at scale for a lot of children if I can help them. 
And so I think it's being open to other worldviews in a way that, but focusing on how do you scale the impact into the world that you can have. And sometimes that means holding your nose with who you're working with. Sometimes that means working with people you would never expect to work with. And you may find a way to scale a solution that you couldn't have done if you kept it pure. Because in the end, the only way we change as a society is if we all change. And that means accepting people where they're at. And that may not be where you're at. That's okay. How about that for philosophy? <laughs> well, I think that that's actually a perfect place to end. I have so many more questions, but that was so perfectly said that I'll let you have the last word with that. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you so much, Jeff.